I would love to have you take your Bibles, if you have not done so already, and join me in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Today we will begin a eight-week series uh, looking at the minor prophets. And I know you might say, well, first of all, where in the world is that? Well, it's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Uh, the Older Testament, you might say. And uh, I want to say a few things about the series and why we're doing this and things like that. Uh, a week ago, on the back of the bulletin, there was a bit of an explanation of what we're doing. Uh, this is a thematic study rather than a, like, say, a 12-week uh, study. So we're not doing each, of, like, a book a week for 12. There's 12 minor prophets. We're not doing that. We're looking at four key themes all right? So some of these will be a, a whole book at a time. Today, just Hosea. Next week with Pastor Tyler, just Jonah. Okay? But from there, most of our weeks will involve pulling in similar themes from different of the minor prophets. You know, the amazing love of God for his people today and for those people next week. Then, of course, a big theme in the Minor Prophets is, is judgment. Um, sin is devastating. We're going to talk very frankly about that. Uh, that's a, that hasn't changed much. Sin, sin is devastating, and it ruins people's lives, and it hurts nations, and it hurts families, and it hurts us, and it's us. It's about us, because we mess it up pretty often. Uh, trusting God when we don't understand, that'll be a week from Habakkuk. And then a couple weeks talking about hope. Because as we'll see over and over again in these books, even as God brings consequences and judgment, he always breathes a word of hope. And we need to hear that message, I think, today. Now, on your study sheet, uh, there's a bit of information that I, I think is so good. I'm committed to teaching us good theology, good understanding of Old Testament, New Testament. So I'm not going com- to comment on all of those elements here, but I, I believe in preaching from both New Testament and Old and helping us understand how the whole Bible fits together. So having just spent a number of months in Matthew, we come now to eight weeks in this particular section of the Old Testament. And my explanation there as to why I think that that's a good thing. I want to comment on the third bullet point. I'll let you look at those other elements on your own time. An important key to understanding the Bible as a unit. And again, I'm very giving just a cursory glance to what is really a big topic. But... I'm wanting to reinforce a couple of things for us in our understanding of the Bible because this is our culture today, all right? I hear this stuff. Uh, The Bible, of course, is one big story from beginning to end. It's a story of redemption. And God is the same from beginning to end. God does not change. His moral standards do not change. God's moral law does not change, okay? So Old Testament, New Testament, God's moral standards, God's moral law, uh, I hear it said sometimes, that's Old Testament. Come on, we're past that. We're now into the New Testament, so we're just going to chuck everything. Hold on there, tiger. Uh, no, God's moral standards, even Old Testament, God's moral standards don't change. Now, having said that, there are elements in the Old Testament that were specific to that time. Things related to the nation of Israel and sacrifices that Christ fulfilled. He didn't throw them out. He fulfilled them. And civil um, Laws about how the, how the nation was to function. Some of those were specific to that time. Well worth our study. But sometimes I hear it said, uh, well, we don't stone rebellious teenagers anymore, so why even listen to the rest of that? 
Which, by the way, that statement shows a gross misunderstanding of how the Bible works. So don't you ever say that, okay? No, you need to know how the whole Bible works. I just think those are important. The whole volumes and sermons are preached on that topic alone. But I wanted to just comment on those things today. Now, Hosea, what are we doing now? What is this about? Uh, The message uh, in the the world and message of Hosea, I, I love this book. Uh, It not only introduces the minor prophets, but there's a message here that you deeply uh, need to know. It's a message about the love of God. The relentless, loyal, faithful, pursuing love of God for his people, even when they are wandering in a different direction from him. Uh, this this book is is then the, that message is lived out in a in a live parable that is jarring, uh, shocking in some respects. It's supposed to be because people turning away from the living God that's supposed to be shocking too. But to help us head that direction, I want to do this. Uh, right about a hundred years ago, uh, a song was put together about the love of God. Appropriately, and perhaps shockingly, it's called The Love of God. And so I want to read just a couple of parts to you. Some of you are very familiar with this song. The Love of God goes like this. Copyrighted first, 1923. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star And it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Verse 3. Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though spread from sky to sky. The love of God. Now, in the year 2000, then, theologian Don Carson wrote a book with an equally jarring title, It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Now, what in the world could be difficult about the love of God? Well, he'll tell you in about 100 pages. He deals with things like ways in which the doctrine of the love of God is perverted, taken sideways today, applied in ways it was never intended to be applied. God loves me the way I am, and I'm not changing. Oh, really? Is that what the love of God is all about? Well, not really. Uh, The love of God and God's sovereignty, that is, if God loves me, what's with this? Whatever that is for you. If If God loves me, how come my life 
looks like, or how come that happened, or how come they didn't, or they did. If God loves me, how about a little longer time at Disneyland? How about, how come, I mean, if God loves me, shouldn't he give me more cool stuff, and I don't see it? So, that. And how about a fourth chapter for Carson? God's love and God's wrath. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you mesh God's judgment. What, did God just get tired of loving? He got, got over that? And suddenly he got mad? Is that it? Like we do? So how do, you, how, do you, how do you see the love of God and God's judgment uh, wed? Well, that's called the difficult doctrine of the love of God. Now, I introduce, introduce both a song, sublime telling of that story, and some of the less comfortable elements as a way to get your mind thinking that way as we come to a jarring text. Okay? So I want to pray for us. This is the text you need to hear today. And then we're going to step into the story of Hosea. So pray with me, please. Our Father, as always, we come to your word with great joy. Your word is a fountain of life as you are that fountain of life. And your word leads us to you. Our Father, I pray that you, the one who knows each of us as individuals, you know what we need to hear. So, Father, would you allow us by the Spirit of God to hear the things today that we so desperately need, each of us, encourage us, challenge us, and most of all, our Father, cultivate in our hearts a love for you, a heart that turns toward you, not away from you. So use this time, use your word, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Hosea, if you look on your study sheet there, just a few little reminders. Hosea, of course, not only the first of the minor prophets, but named for the main character in the book, a prophet of God. And his name, Hosea, very similar in its root and background to both Joshua and Jesus, has that name in it of salvation. Salvation, of course, appropriate to the story of a redeeming love. Now, I, you know, I, I like to in preaching, give us information that helps us all in our private study of the Bible. That's one of our goals in preaching, is to better equip all of us to read and understand the Bible on our own. You don't have to come here and, and only be in this setting to read and understand the Bible. We want to equip you to do more of that. So with that in mind, there are three dates. I've repeated these, I've given these to you before, and I repeat them periodically. And so I'm going to do now. There are three dates in the Old Testament that if you, if you get what's going on, it'll help you hang the Old Testament together. Because the Old Testament, as it appears in our Bibles, most of, for most of us, uh, it, it's not in chronological order. And there are certain historical events that once you uncover them, you go, oh, wait, wait, wait. So that's how that fits. And you'd be right if you get the right events. All right? So three big events, three dates. I give them to you here. And you should kind of know what they're about. So um, Saul, David, Solomon, I'm just going to start there. Time of, of Israel as a nation united. But then in, in 922, 922, the nation of Israel had this like this civil war and split in two. Twelve tribes, nation of Israel, right? But in, in what did I say, 922? Wow, I can read. No, it's seven, 931, 722, 586. I'll get it. I really will. 931. Civil war, the nation split in half. The ten tribes in the north 
kind of stayed with the name Israel. The two tribes in the south went under the name of Judah, but they kind of split. During that time of the divided kingdom, there were no good kings in the north. Zero. They were Ophir in the north. Not one king that wanted to honor God. In the south, it was kind of 50-50. But so 931, the nation split. 722, the Israel, the northern part, was taken captive into Assyria. Are you with me on this? This is riveting stuff. I know, it really is. 722, the north goes into captivity, leaving the south. 586, Babylon comes in, takes out the south, and I like to say it, the lights went out, the lights went out. Now, 586, uh, other um, deportations and so on, but that's a kind of a key date. Now, here's the thing, the middle one, 722. Hosea is speaking, preaching, in the years just preceding that. So for about 20 years, maybe 30 years prior to 722, Hosea is preaching largely to that northern part, uh, still called Israel, even though it was just part of, the, part of the nation. He's preaching to them. Their hearts are turned from God. It's a time of national decline. It is indeed awful. Bad news in the newspaper. People's hearts are not turned toward God. And Hosea is preaching on behalf of a loving God saying, come, would you stop this nonsense and come back to me? Okay? Now, that's where the story of Hosea kind of shows up. And God says, Hosea, I have a job for you. And I want you to play out in your life in living color, in, in jarring detail, what's taking place in the country. So the people, maybe they'll see it. Maybe they'll get it. So that's kind of what's going on, reaping. They're reaping a harvest for decades of sin. So with that in mind, we turn to the other half of your study sheet, and I'm going to read chapter 1. And I acknowledge here my outline headings came from my MacArthur Study Bible. Looked at a variety of headings for the first part of the book and the second half and went, oh, you can't do much better than that. And I took them, and I gave credit where credit is due. That's the important part of that. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, so south, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, so north, right? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Can you imagine that as a word from the Lord? Wow. Wow. So he went, and he took Gomer, the wife or the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. It's the only child specifically said, born to Hosea. The Lord said to him, Call his, name, <clears throat> call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So breaking the bow, that's like the military power is going to be broken, your, your, your strength as a nation. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. Some of your Bibles use the Hebrew term Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, the south. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. 
And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. You see, uh, lo amai in some of your Bibles. For you are not my people and I am not your God. And now this little paragraph of hope, interesting. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wow, all the way through now, as you read this whole book, some of you do that in preparation for preaching. I know you do because you tell me. Some of you read the text coming up. Good for that. Good for you. This, you'll notice that the story kind of fades back and forth between Hosea and his family circumstances and God and the nation of Israel. It kind of go back and forth. They're kind of blended together. Now, I ask you here on your study sheet, have you ever thought that you had a rough assignment from the Lord? Can you imagine hearing that as your assignment? And I, I say that knowing that some of you do have tough assignments from the Lord. I, I, I know that. Um, sometimes there are things that come our way and we say, oh Lord, I can't do that. I can't live with, I can't, I can't. And somehow his strength is made perfect in your weakness. And you can. But boy, Hosea had a tough job. Three kids, painful meaning, living out a, a season of reaping and destruction. Chapter 2 now is written in a little more poetic form. And the first part of the chapter, up uh, through verse 13, is kind of separate. The verse 14 and what follows is, again, more of a story of hope. But the first part, uh, Hosea, now you can apply it specifically there, try to picture this playing out. Uh, a wife who is unfaithful, and he knows it. And everybody appears to know it. And the kids know mom's running around. Can you imagine this? And so in chapter 2, verse 2, it's like the kids. Some years are going by. He says to them, plead with your mother, plead. She's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. It's like, it's like he's saying, hey, kids, we got to get your mama's heart back. This is jarring stuff for kids to realize, isn't it? Some of you have lived in circumstances that are just as difficult. Down to verse 5. Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. The strong language is there on purpose, by the way, right? We could say this with softer words and different euphemisms, but it's not like that, and it's not like that on purpose. It's supposed to get your attention. Your mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. She says, I'll go after my lovers. Watch this. Who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. In other words, this is going well for me right now. At least she thinks it does. She thinks it's going well for her. She thinks this is providing life and substance and and future and hope. Look at all the stuff I'm getting out of this. What a great day this is. It's working for me. Hosea says, therefore I will hedge her Hedge up her way with thorns. I'll build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So she she shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. He says, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. That's the idea here. I'm going to do whatever I've got to do here. This is tough love time. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. But in the midst of that, verse 8 is stunning. Try this. She did not know that it was I 
who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, who's leaving her bags of groceries out front every morning. Isn't that crazy? She thinks, she thinks she's getting all this stuff from the people she's running around with. And her estranged husband, even without her knowing it, with not a word of thanks, is leaving her stuff, so to speak, at the front door. Meeting her needs. If, if that's surprising to you, again, it's supposed to be. You're supposed to see in Hosea's amazing Un, un, uh, un, <laughs> love that's not responded to. The word missed wouldn't come. You're supposed to see in that the love of God. Not only here, you're supposed to see in this, listen, the love of God for you. Because this isn't just a story of Hosea and Gomer. It's a story of you and God. Listen, in your wanderings, in your times of struggle, in your times away from God, is he still kind to you? yes. A thousand times yes. In your seasons of wandering, when you're not pausing every morning to say, thank you, God, for your daily blessing, when you're not even looking heavenward, God is still kind to you. He is still supplying your need. He's still giving you breath in the morning. Your heart is still beating when you get up. God is still kind to you. And in this, Hosea is mirroring that kind of amazing love that is in God. For his people. Now, verses 9, 10, 11, 12, there's some tough words here. Therefore I will, therefore I will. A whole list of things. I'll let you read those things. It involves turning her heart and, and boxing her in and letting her see the consequences of her ways. Absolutely. We use the terms tough love these days. Yes, that's here in the text. But at the same time, then, when you come to verse 14, at the very same moment that there are consequences and uh, difficulties coming her way, there is on the part of this estranged husband a developing plan to win her heart back. Can you imagine? She has not responded yet. She has not turned her heart back to him. And at the same time, he's making plans to take her, to get her away, to rescue her, so to speak, from verse 14. That's what you get. I'm going to take her out into the wilderness. I'm going to get her away from these bad influences. I'm going to speak kindly to her. You know, I'm just going to yell at her. I'm going to speak kindly to her. I'm going to give her hope. I'm going to give her safety, security. The Valley of Achor, a door of hope. That's looking back to the story of Achan. The Valley of Achor, a plane of of, of pain and suffering, separation from God. And he says, I'm going to turn that season of difficulty into a new day. This is an estranged husband whose wife at this moment wants nothing to do with him. And he's, he's scheming, he's plotting to win her heart back. Can you imagine? We would not blame him right here to just say, hey, just write her off and be done. Just be done. That's probably the counsel we would give to someone else and hope they would give to us were we in that circumstance. But it doesn't appear to be the heart of God for his people, fortunately. And it's certainly not Hosea's heart for his wife either. Verse 16, look at this. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and will no longer, uh, no longer will call me my Baal or Baal, um, my master. Uh, it's looking to a day when she will respond as to a loving husband rather than to one who just owns her. 
In other words, I, I'm not just, I don't want you with me just because you have to be with me. I want you to be with me because you want me. You want to be with me. I want your heart. See? That's what he's looking ahead to. I'll make you lie down in safety, verse 18. I'll betroth you to me forever. My promises are going to still be true. Now, you, you step to chapter 3, and again, I was kind of working through my notes there, a journey toward destruction, yes, pursuing, that pursuing love. That's what you see taking place in the text. Hosea's loyal love. Now, some would see in chapter 3 a slave auction. That may or may not be the case, but regardless, uh, God sends Hosea to get his wife. And the description here is he's going to, he's going to pay good money. Take a look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. We don't have to pretend. That's what's going on. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they run to other gods and eat cakes of raisins. We'll talk about that. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, well, homer and a half. The ESV uses a, uh, a term for... Uh, measurement, a homer and a half basically of barley. And I said to her, you shall dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. Go, go, go to her. Uh, sounds like in some case, perhaps a slave auction. If you know anything about ancient slave auctions, they were degrading, degrading places. Here's a woman um, up on display, rock bottom. We talk about that sometimes, and I know that in all the things that I'm saying today, for some of you, this is very real stuff, not theory. Whether a spouse or a child, I know, I know, I know. So Hosea goes, his wife, I would say rock bottom, a crowd gathered around, she wondering what her future is going to be. Voices calling out, five shekels, six, tell her to turn around, I'll take seven. And then a familiar voice outbids them all. Fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. My hunch is he's out of money. Will you take grain? That's all I have. He's not skimming 15 shekels out of his bank account. My suspicion is that's all he has. Otherwise, why would, you, why would you go to the cart and start pitching barley? Right? How about some corn, wheat, grain? It's what I have. Take it all. Now, it's one thing to think about this from the standpoint of Hosea. What do you think is going on in Gomer at this moment? What's, what's he feel? What's she feel? What does she feel as she hears a voice? Outbid all the others. Wow. Her eyes are down. Are they up? She's shamed. Ashamed at this moment. The one she's betrayed for how long? Paying everything to get her back. Isn't that crazy? It's supposed to be amazing because we're Gomer and the one who paid it all for us is God who pursues and loves and doesn't quit 
Even when you, as a child of God, aren't that smart. Heard a speaker recently use this phrase, sin, sin makes us stupid. Has that ever played out in your life? How many times have you ever said, what was I? Yeah, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? When I know, you'd say later, I, I, I'm not sure that I was. Sin makes us stupid. And we, we think we'll get away with that. And it's going to be fine. And nobody will know. And, and it's going to be, you know, come on. I'm, it's fun now. It's great. Sin makes us stupid. And here's this gal, Gomer. Here she is. Worst day of her life, perhaps. Didn't work out the way she thought. Consequences crashing in. Then he shows up. What does she have to offer? Is this a day for her to say, well, I, I bring a lot to the table. Oh, you do? <laughs> you don't bring anything to the table. Broke. Nothing. And Hosea comes and says, I'll give everything I have for you. The loyal love of God is supposed to be jarring. It's supposed to take your breath away. It's supposed to make you say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's supposed to do that. Now, there's another section there on your study notes, and I bring it to you for your continued study, and it's chapter four through the end of the book, and I am going to let you Look at that today. I'm not going to touch it. You might say, well, that's half your sermon. Well, no, it's really not. It's a part of the text, and I give you some keys to looking at it and understanding it. But I want to head to that response part uh, because I want to make sure we have some time here. In Jeremiah 31, there is a, a voice from that Old Testament prophet, a voice from God, talking about another day. From that, at that moment, I'm gonna, I'm, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. There's going to be a day. I'm going to make a new covenant. It's Jeremiah looking ahead to New Testament times, to the coming of Jesus. A new covenant. New covenant. Now, the New Testament talks about this new covenant. It's a new covenant where God, boy, I'm going to summarize it. And in summarizing, um, so much that I will leave out. I must. But all the provisions of new covenant blessing, my goodness, the heart of it is the work of Jesus on the cross and God's pursuit of our hearts, right? God's pursuit of our hearts, not just our actions, but God's pursuit of our hearts. You find this spoken of four different, in four different texts in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, um, the old covenant being set aside, this new covenant being inaugurated with Jesus. Both Luke telling the story of the Last Supper, communion, records Jesus saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So does Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, as he tells about communion time. He quotes Jesus, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's God pursuing your heart. It's God pursuing your heart. Not just your hands, not just the outside, not just your obedience externally, but your heart, your heart affection for him. And I I have on your study notes here, please get this. Make no mistake. 
God's loyal love isn't just about loving you the way you are. You've heard me mention that before. I'll keep beating on this one because it seems to be deeply ingrained in our culture, and I I hope it's not in us inside a, a church that holds to the Bible. Sometimes people think about God loving us, and they say, well, that means God loves you just the way you are. And, oh, dear people, that's barely half true. So just throw it away. How about that? Loves you just the way, well... Mm. How about he loves you right where you're at, but he loves you too much to leave you there? How about that? If you're sitting someplace in a cesspool saying, well, God loves me right here where I'm at, what kind of love would it be if he said, well, that's fine, you want to be there? What kind of love is that? Oh, it's a, God's love is a rescuing love. It's a pursuing love, pursuing your heart. If God just lets you sit there in, in a mess and filth and doesn't do whatever it takes to yank you out of that, what kind of love is that? People say it all the time, though. God loves me just the way I am. I know he does. And yeah, like I say, half true, half true. Yes, he, yes, yeah, I guess, I guess. But he loves you too much to leave you there, and he won't if you're a child of God. He will keep battering at the door of your heart, chasing you down, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, talks about God using pain for good. God whispers to us in our pleasures, Lewis would say, but he shouts to us in our pain. How often does God use pain to get our attention? Lewis says pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. Isn't that good? Pain is God's megaphone. Do you hear me now, the commercial says. Do you hear me now? That could be the voice of God speaking into your life as things crumble or don't go quite the way you think as you go your own way. Can you hear me now? God says, oh, just wait. There's more where this came from. I want to look at one text in this latter part of Hosea. And uh, that would be Hosea 10, chapter 10 and verse 12. This, If I was to grab a verse to summarize the verses uh, chapters 4 to 14 this would be it it uses a farming theme similar to what we have in our artwork for this series sow for yourselves righteousness reap steadfast love break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you so a farming uh, theme do you like what you're reaping because you are Well, if you don't like what you're reaping, maybe you should sow a different crop. So how about if you'd sow righteousness instead? How about that? Sow righteousness. Then break up your fallow ground. What is fallow ground? What is fallow ground? Well, uh, we're familiar with some of the Old Testament patterns where uh, a farmer was told every seven years to let the land lie fallow. That is unplowed, unplanted, to kind of rejuvenate itself. Nowadays, we just put more chemicals on, typically, and away we go. But it was a practice, and some farmers still do that today. You let the land uh, lie fallow for a, a year to kind of rejuvenate. Well, what happens during that year? Well, it grows weeds, Gets hard. So you bring in a plow. So break it up. Is yeah, break up your unplowed ground. Listen, it's time to seek the Lord. It's time. You hear this? What time is it? It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. You find some area of your life, maybe not your whole life. Maybe there's a part of your life where you haven't been seeking the Lord. Maybe you got part of your life where things are kind of on track and you got another section over here like the, the back 40 acres that you're keeping for yourself, unplowed ground. 
And along comes Hosea and says, hey, hey, it's time for you to seek the Lord. It's time to break up that unplowed ground, that fallow ground. Time to pull those weeds out. Tell God to bring in his plow and break up the hard spots and plant a new crop. You might say, well, yeah, most of my life's kind of okay, right? And maybe there's that other, that other room or that other part of the field where for you today, Hosea would come along and say, it's time. It's time for that. It's time for to give that back 40 to the Lord. It's time for that fallow ground to get plowed up. It's time to seek the Lord. Well, listen, here's the deal with this whole book. Um, I, I want to ask you to do something in response to all of this. Um, the book of Hosea tells the story of a family. And that family is telling the story of God relating to his people. Pursuing love, faithful love. We're Gomer. We tend to go astray, prone to wander. Remember we sang that earlier today? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel. You want to know the irony of this, that song? Uh, The guy who wrote that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, did exactly that. Did you know that? He wrote that song when he was young and following Jesus and hanging out in a good church. And then he wandered. And it was a lifetime later. Somebody had the words of the poem he wrote. Little did he know it had been put to a song. Years later, I hope it's not just an apocryphal story, though it could be. Years later, as the story goes, he was in some setting and heard somebody singing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And he thought, oh my. That's been me. He lived what he wrote. Well, would you be willing, as we serve communion today, it's a time of thinking about Jesus, would you be willing to just ask God if there's fallow ground in your life, unplowed, it's got weeds, needs to get plowed up and have a better crop planted? Would you be willing to ask him if in your life there's some of that unplowed ground? Just ask him. Just ask him. And if he shows you some area of your life or affection that's unplowed ground, maybe today you'll say, Lord, plow up that ground. Plant a new crop. Why would you not do that? It's time to seek the Lord. It's time. It's time. I want to pray for us. We'll talk about communion. Those who are going to serve can come down as I pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. You pursue us. You pursue us relentlessly. So grateful for that. You pursue us not because we're so pursuable, not because we're so warm and fuzzy, warm and cuddly. We're not. We are prone to wander. Father, I thank you for Jesus even in communion as we remember his death, burial, and resurrection, we thank you that you pursue us relentlessly. Help us now as we turn our thoughts to Jesus, as we pray in his name, amen. Communion, of course, is a retelling of the story of Jesus. The little piece of bread reminds us of his body broken for us on the cross and the cup a reminder of his blood shed for us. 
here at Sunset Bible Church, if you know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to share with us in taking the bread and then the cup. And the way we serve communion here, the guys will come around with the trays of bread. You just hang on to a piece and wait till they come to the front again. And then as a reminder of our unity in Christ, I'll say just a word or two and we'll take that piece of bread together. Uh, We're not bound together because we're all alike. We're bound together because Jesus died on the cross for us. In him is our true unity. Let's remember Christ together. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says this, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not draw you to himself because you are so smart or handsome or pretty. It wasn't because of your great potential, your amazing skill set. It wasn't because you're so nice. wasn't any of that he loved you because he loved you it's a love of choice undeserved again and again 
and again. This little piece of bread points us to Christ. Let's receive it with thankfulness. of John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I hope that's you today. The one who believes in him. Christ. Christ alone. This little cup is a reminder of the love of God for us as evidenced in the cross. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look no further than the cross. He does. Let's remember him. I'd like to pray for us. Would you stand with me, please?
Our Father, um, we are those prone to wander. It's more real, more true of us than we would like to admit at times. Now we thank you that you are a God of relentless and loyal love for your people. You pursue us and you pursue us and you pursue us and you don't stop. Thank you for this. Our Father, I pray that we would be continually amazed, continually amazed at the depth of your love. Oh, righteous, yes, holy, but relentless. Thank you, thank you. Father, bless us as we go this week. Bless us most of all with the sense of your presence and awareness of your walking with us and a focus on Jesus. And we pray with gratefulness in his name. Amen.